in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Lizzie Hayes. How you doing tonight, Lizzie? Hey there, I am doing great. It was a gorgeous day outside, perfect fall day, and excited to talk about movies. Absolutely, and it is, once again, ladies' night. Coming to you from Austin, Texas, our special guest, Miss Bears, Rebecca Fonte. You may have heard her from our Flight of the Navigator podcast. Bears, welcome back. Please tell our listeners about you, about your efforts with the Other Worlds Film Festival. Just uh, fill us in on what you're up to. Sure. I'm glad to be back. I run the Other Worlds Film Festival here in Austin, Texas, which is the uh, premier science fiction film festival in the entire country. Um, we show movies from things indie films coming out today to all the way back to classics. Uh, as uh, and last year we showed Flight of the Navigator, which was why I suggested it uh, for the for the uh, podcast. So um, I also run the queer festival in town, Aglif, the All Genders, Lifestyles, and Identities Film Festival. So I split my time between two different festivals with two very different topics here in in austin very very good awesome. yeah. yeah we we love our sci-fi here so our our listeners we've been a little dry this year with sci-fi we kind of had to put put a moratorium on it last year of hey no more sci-fi we got a lot but this year we need we need people like you there's uh saying bring bring the sci-fi to the podcast that's what our use our listeners want so today our warm-up questions we've got sci-fi henchman and we've got bond series so roundtable loves the bond series iconic henchman bears we'll start with you you're a bond villain can you describe your henchman what's their name what's their unique feature and what makes them your head henchman is, is this an imagined henchman that i that i'm recruiting or i mean if you have real fun? life henchmen great you are way ahead of the game <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted a henchman that I would be able to just, uh, like, brain feed everything that's going on in my mind to, and I don't actually have to, like, uh, explain anything, and then they would just do all the topics for me. So I, I think um, that henchman's uh, name would be uh, Side Task. Nice. And, uh, it's, a little, it's a little bit like Odd Job, uh, but it's a very specific, you know, or maybe Multitask. Um, because it would allow me to, to do something else at, at the same time. And uh, this person would be very organized and work very quickly and, uh, and know what I need before, before I need it. And I think that would be a really great person for any villain to have uh, is somebody who is like right up there intellectually with them because the problem with most henchmen is they're usually pretty stupid. And so they're not <laughs> – 
they're not very helpful when you know they're fine in the first act of the movie when things are going well for the villain but when you get into that third act and like the the protagonist is actually fighting back the henchmen don't last too long they they are really just fodder uh for the protagonist to like push through until they get to the the primary villain all right multitask i i dig it i dig a psychically linked henchman lizzie what do you have so I am a peacemaker by nature, so to put myself in the shoes of an evil scientist feels hard because anybody that knows me knows that the moment that the pressure is on, like I'm just going to cave. So my henchman, <laughs> I would need somebody that's willing to do, do the dirty work for me so that I don't have to do it uh, because I'm just too chicken. So I, I, just, I don't know if this necessarily counts, uh, but I chose Frau Forbissna from Austin Powers yes, yes. because she does all the yelling for everybody. So anytime that there's any kind of an issue, I could just have her, you know, send in the fan pass and it'd be great. I could just sit there and act like I'm super nice and agreeable while I'm taking over the world. <laughs> there you go. There you- Sometimes you've got to set up that henchman. You, you're the shadow organizer. That's right. So, yeah, I, I like <laughs> that. The Oz behind the curtain. Yes, absolutely. I am going, I'll just go with like a ridiculous name like Scarlet Widow or something like like that. I mean, we we just have ridiculous names for all of our henchmen. But you got to go with the female assassin. Not only are they deadly with their weapons, their tools, but they've got the looks no one ever suspects the absolutely stunning woman to just slit your throat in the dark. So she's going to be my operative. I am hiring Scarlet Widow. Bears, what's the last movie you saw? It doesn't have to be in theaters. Well, I just uh, got out of Fantastic Fest, so I saw about 35 movies in eight days. Oh, my goodness. Um, so uh-huh. <laughs> it, it was hard to pick one of those. So I'm, I'm just going to – I'm going to – give up one that is coming out really soon. It's called The Banshees of Insharon, um, which is the new Martin McDonough film uh, starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Really, really dark black comedy about two people who live in this tiny town uh, on this island in Ireland, and they have houses next to each other, and they've been best friends for a long time, and then one of them just decides that the other one isn't interesting enough in order to be his friend, and he doesn't want to spend all of his time, you know, just having stupid conversations, and so they develop this, like, uh, huge conflict between the two of them that that brings the entire town wondering when they're ever going to make peace with each other. It's really funny, but also really sad, because it's all about, like, how alone you could be if you live on an island and you really don't have a whole lot of friends, because there's not that many people there to begin with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Make sure you are trapped on a desert island with someone you can tolerate. That's exactly that's for sure. Lizzie, uh, my husband and I actually had a double feature date night last night. So Ooh, awesome. we saw Don't Worry, Darling. And then the last movie, it was Smile. Oh, and... I'm jealous. I wanted to go. My <laughs> wife chickened out. I saw I... A Smile at Fantastic Fest, too. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I felt like, okay, so Chad, I know that you and I both are big lovers of the ring and it has big ring vibes. Nice. So I think that you will really like it. I think it's virtually a pretty near perfect, like cozy horror movie, if if you will. Really good. Oh man, I am off all this coming week and I will probably hit that up. Sadly alone, but yeah, my my wife is she is 
out. She she was looking it up on her phone. We we had a date night as well. We went to a haunted house because it's it's October and this is what I like doing. She's like, if we're going to go see Smile, I've got to look up everything about it. No, don't ruin, don't ruin the movie. So I, I did couldn't, not get. Couldn't to see she it. look it up and then not tell you? I, I would know. I would. She wouldn't tell me, but the reactions. I just, I want someone to go into a horror movie blind. So she's, she has to prep herself often for these types of movies. Well, you... I do that sometimes. I do that. <laughs> I've done that with several. I did not do that with Smile. But there have been two occasions where I have read ahead and spoiled the movie for myself and then declared that we have to turn it off because whatever I've just read, I cannot actually watch. And that was (laughs) um, (laughs) the sequel to The Human Centipede and Hereditary. Those are like the two movies that I was like, nope, now that I understand what's happening, I'm not watching it. Oh, uh, the the Internet's going to fight you over Hereditary. I'm on board. I'm not a fan of Hereditary, but yeah, there's a... I'm not either. Okay, all right, consensus. Everyone's going to write us hate mail. <laughs> as for me, I watched the movie Where uh, from 2013. That's W-E-R as in werewolf. It's, it's going to sound so pretentious. It's a Romanian werewolf film. Uh, it's it's a different take. It's really enjoyable. It is, it's dubbed in English, and it's just, it's fun. I like werewolf films, so... Always happy to visit that genre. I'm in the middle. We're recording in October, so I'm in the middle of a 31 movies in 31 days challenge. So I had to hit, nice. had to hit some uh, foreign countries challenges. But as for today, like I said, we're going to be revisiting the Bond franchise, something that we go to a lot. And I've probably given it away because I mentioned sci-fi. But Lizzie, can you tell us what movie we are doing today? We are going to revisit Moonraker. All right. Yes, Moonraker from 1979, starring Sir Roger Moore, Lois Chiles, Michael Lonsdale, Richard Keel, Corinne Cleary, and Jeffrey Keane. This was budgeted $34 million. It's the biggest budget they had. It was... That's more than the combined first eight movies of the Bond franchise. So this is a big deal for them. It grosses over $70 million domestically. It was the highest grossing Bond movie until GoldenEye in 1995. So that's a big deal. I, I wouldn't have picked this one as the highest grossing one. $210 million, uh internationally. And obviously, you know, the reason why is this is 1979. So we're two years after Star Wars, which yes. means right. space was... Space was the reason that this this film, uh, you know, leaped up so high in the budget and, oh. and in the and the, in the box office. Oh yeah, it actually jumped what the the end credits said. Bond will return in four year eyes only, but because of Star Wars, we did this one because lasers in space. <laughs> it 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 does place ninth in in the box office that year. It places right behind the Jerk. Excellent move movie and right ahead of the muppet movie also great number one movie that year is kramer versus kramer great year 1979 imdb rating is a 6.2 rotten tomatoes this is a polarizing movie a, the critics give it a 59 percent the audience gives it a 43 percent i'm guessing solely based on a pigeon doing a double take uh, <laughs> it, great moment it 
actually is nominated for an Academy Award. Derek Meldings, Paul Wilson, and John Evans are nominated for Best Visual Effects. There's a Saturn Award. With, those are our sci-fi and horror-type awards. Best Science Fiction Film, Best Special Effects, and Best Supporting Actor in Richard Keel. Bears, this was on your short list. Had you seen Moonraker before? If you had, what were you expecting when you revisited it? Do you think it holds up? Well, I definitely had seen it before. Um, I'm one of those people who Roger Moore is my bond. I grew up with Roger Moore. I saw these films in the theater. I'm pretty sure I saw this film in the theater. Um, uh, It would have been, you know, they always come out at Thanksgiving. So I would have been with my grandparents and my my parents. So I'm, I'm sure and I was a huge Star Wars fan. So I'm sure we saw this in the theater. I gotta say, I think in my mind, since I have become a person who runs a science fiction festival, I had convinced myself that this film was probably terrible, and that the science was so terrible in it that it was was unwatchable. Even though I hadn't watched it in probably you know 20 years or so, I I feel like there was there was a time in my life when I rewatched all the Bond movies, and that was probably right after college. I didn't remember much about it except that Jaws was in it, Jaws being Richard Keel, the henchman. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say that uh, it actually lived up to my very low expectations, and I, and, and, I, and I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would because, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a Bond movie, so no matter what, it's fun. If you, don't, if you don't mind Roger Moore, which I know that's another thing that people disagree with a lot about is how they feel about Roger Moore, but... Um, I I love him. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Right. How about you, Lizzie? Had you seen Moonraker? What were your expectations? Are you a Bond fan? So I had never seen this movie before. Wow. And confession that I, I'm kind of like, I don't have a lot of knowledge on Bond. I've seen Casino Royale and most of the Daniel Craig Bond movies, but I feel like that would categorize me as, still like a rookie Bond fan, knowing if he's the only Bond that I've ever really seen. And so I... You were about to really impress me if you said you, you had, you'd seen Casino Royale, i.e. the Woody Allen version. Yes. And I, no. I, I was, <laughs> the I parody like, version. You're a real fan, yeah, because that's the no. one that came out, not part of the, the traditional franchise. Yeah. You are breaking Never. Russell's heart right now because he, he hates Daniel Craig so, <laughs> so very much. I'm not a huge Bond fan. I have always said that if – no, I like action, but I think action has to only be done – there's only one way to do it, and it's to make it fun. I think if action is too serious, I just – I'm out. I can't it, – it's just too hard for me. And so I had the expectation, to be totally honest, that I was going to absolutely hate this movie. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to watch this movie. I'm going to do it. It's lazy Sunday. I'm gonna press play. My kids are napping, and you know what? If it's two hours of my life that I'll never get back, then it it is what it is. But I gotta be honest, I didn't hate it. I really didn't. I think that this was a lot more fun than I had anticipated it being. I think that there's a campiness to it that communicates at least to me of like, hey, we know that this is a little ridiculous and we're just trying to have fun with it, which then allowed me to, as the viewer to have fun with it. Yeah, low expectations, but overall it ended up being a good experience. 
this is going to be such a wild extreme for you going from Daniel Craig to this is this is as silly as Bond gets. Moonraker has just it's an 11 for the campiness and silliness. So, yeah, that's we need to get you some Connery in here just to get some uh, like a hybrid of what's going on. But I'm like bears. I am a huge Roger Moore fan. He is my Bond as well. I recognize, like, I I really don't like the movie Octopussy. It's just nothing nothing works for me. But Man with a Golden Gun is my favorite Bond movie of all time. And so I'm excited. When we get to do a Roger Moore movie that isn't Octopussy or A View to a Kill... Uh, we did we did a view to a kill and Russell actually booted me off of the podcast because I can't say nice things about it. They throw dynamite from a refrigerator from a, from a blimp. I yeah. So this one I was excited to revisit. It's not one of the highest ones that I go back and watch. What I primarily primarily remembered was hey this is the one in space with the huge space station well space isn't a huge part of it and i'd forgotten so many of the other cool things of course i remember the pigeon double take that's a uh, that's up there with the slide whistle from man with a golden gun poor roger moore just gets these horrible bond moments in here i think it mostly held up what surprises me is some of the visual effects because it's obvious when we're throwing dummies up in the air and they're there are a couple other things that haven't aged well, like the lasers at the end. It, it looks like a 70s video game when they're troopers shooting lasers back at each other. But you know what? I'm on board for it still. It's silly. It's fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. So I want more of this and less grittiness. But everybody else seems to disagree with me as far as the franchise goes. Uh, We are going to spoil this movie, so if you haven't checked out Moonraker, or if it's been a while, please put us on pause. Go check it out. It's two hours that you will not regret. You'll laugh. We will be right back after these ads to spoil the movie for you. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. One last warning before Lizzie spoils this movie. If you haven't checked it out, please check out Moonraker. Lizzie, can you tell us what the heck just happened in this movie? (laughs) Yes. So our movie opens with the space shuttle Moonraker being carried on a large cargo plane for the British government. It's en route when two men emerge and hijack the plane. A distressed British government decide to turn to their best agent to locate the space shuttle and return it unharmed. Bond, James Bond. 
We then cut to James Bond, who by no surprise is getting cozy with a woman on a plane, when he quickly realizes that she, along with her sidekick Jaws, a man with razor-sharp teeth, are targeting him. Bond is able to successfully jump out of the plane, steal the henchman's parachute, and escape successfully to return to Moneypenny and receive his next assignment to save Moonraker. Bond begins his search on the shuttle at the home in which it was made, Drax Corporation in California. Upon arrival, he meets Corinne, a beautiful pilot, with an eye for Bond, who introduces him to Drax and tours the estate. During his tour, he sees the beautiful astronaut trainees, to which Corinne says that Drax has had a passion for selecting and training the astronauts at his home base. During his meeting with Drax, he's given no answers to the whereabouts of the shuttle, but is introduced to Dr. Goodhead, who spearheads the G-Force training. Uh, that, that evening, Bond sneaks into Drax's office and photographs blueprints of small electronics and some devices made by a glass company in Italy. Bond's cover is quickly blown, and he must leave quickly and flees to Italy to further investigate his findings. During a tour of the glass facility, he runs into Dr. Goodhead, realizing that there is more to her than meets the eye. He's later chased by henchmen on a crazy gondola ride until he finally arrives back at the lab and then discovers the same blueprint devices matching Drax's photos with a clear liquid inside. Upon investigating, the liquid is released and Bond watches as two scientists die while animals and plants remain. Bond later confides in Goodhead, and she drops the act, revealing that she is CIA, and although they don't fully trust one another, they end up spending the night together, allowing Bond to look through her things and see that her next move is in Rio. Bond tries to ambush Drax, and Drax is one step ahead of him, leaving him looking reckless. Bond's superiors then demand that he takes a leave, to which he decides to go on vacation in Rio, where he finds the liquid is actually a source from a rare orchid that causes sterility and is modified to only affect humans. After a long battle with Jaws, returning, a returning henchman from earlier and a run-in with a large snake, Bond finally makes his way back to Drax's control room, where he sees that Drax is launching Moonraker space shuttles. Drax leaves Bond and Goodhead for dead, but not before they escape, dress as trainees, and make their way onto the space shuttle. They see that Drax is addressing all of the trainees from earlier, and he reveals his great plan to create the perfect specimen, those who are genetically and physically superior. Upon hearing this, Jaws realizes that he will not be a part of Drax's plan and decides to switch sides and help Bond with his cause. A fight breaks out and Drax is ultimately defeated and pushed out into open space. And the movie concludes with Bond victorious and doing what James Bond does best with Dr. Goodhead in space. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, there's you mentioned snakes and uh, <laughs> poor, poor prop snake. It didn't deserve that. It's but so gondola chases. Moonraker is just over-the-top action. It's entertainment. It's filled with gadgets and spy gear. And I'm particularly interested in you, Lizzie, your experiences with Daniel Craig, and you're not getting these types of spy gear and gadgets. Do you like this type of Bond, or are you more of a I-want-my-grounded realism I think it's fun. I mean, I I, um, I don't have a lot of experience with uh, Daniel Craig, so I can't really remember what comes to mind with him. But I do remember from the Kingsman movies 
uh, that's kind of like a little bit of a parallel to James Bond, I suppose, where, so you know, fun. he's he got, he's got, you know, the heel of his, or excuse me, the toe of his shoe can be a knife and, um, you know, his glasses and his watch and everything's a certain little gadget. And those certainly don't make or break the movie for me, but I can definitely suspend my disbelief for the fun of the movie because they absolutely contribute to just the overall glamour of James Bond and, you know, his, his fancy gadgets and being able to save the world. It's just kind of all one, one uh, giant part of the, the meal. I think this is a film that has some of the most over the top gadgetry though, because (laughs) I I think the, I think the gondola that's souped out with uh, machine guns and like becomes a hovercraft. I mean like that one, I, I, I read some, um, I was reading some, analysis of the film before and people were complaining about that and and how un, unlikely that was and how it's like well how how did that happen but it is very clear that he knows the person who is you know driving the gondola or like whatever you call it, the gondolier ahead of time it's clearly james bond's gondola so it like intentionally was souped out and right. i i think you get you get all those sorts of things in this film like that you weren't you wouldn't expect it anywhere else but like in a bond film anything can happen but especially like oh this gondola like when we're all of a sudden the gondola like some of the slowest moving boats on in history become <laughs> like <laughs> speedboats in and out of the the you know the venice canals but that's what makes it so fun yeah that scene in and of itself is so wild because it took him five takes and you'll notice bond's wearing a silk suit four of the five takes roger moore gets dumped in the water it didn't work and so they're down to their last silk suit. They had to change out every single time. And they got it to inflate, and he made it onto land. But yeah, that, that entire canal scene, they have a five knots limit. So it, it's probably obvious to us now. It wasn't when I was a kid that the track is sped up. You can you can see that yes. the boats are really sped up because there's a five-knot speed limit. If you're not familiar with boating, that's incredibly slow. That is gondola paddling slow. <laughs> so you can't have speed speedboat races in there. But yeah, that's that's a fun one. And Q, you're right, Bears. Q has some of his... I like his impractical gadgets. There's like a guy taking a siesta that opens up into some kind of sentry gun. And right. it's just like, what what scenario would you use this for? And of course, for the kids that grew up playing Goldeneye on Nintendo 64, you have the Moonraker laser, and they are melting a face with this laser here. It never actually gets practically used, but you kind of want some face melting here. But he, he's got a lot of cool spy gear, too, that it's like a cigarette case, I think, is... Uh, being used to crack the safe and so it's dialing in and he's got his little 007 branded viewfinder camera which is great stuff i i like that for whatever reason we decided to brand it like one of the eyes and his is one of the zeros for his 007 so we the gadget the gadget that gets the most use though is the wristband dart yes gun. yes which which saves James on several occasions. It's one of the few times I think in the series where we see a gadget used more than one time. Um, yeah, absolutely. It opens up that air vent in the end, and uh, yeah, 
bails him out it, of being fried. And it and it saves him from the gravitational pull of the yes. uh, of the 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 training for astronauts, which is supposed to only go up to seven. Uh, yes. What was, what was seven the G's. measurement they were? Yeah. Seven G's. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, then, is my worst nightmare. Like that's my ultimate worst. Like that reminds me of the. Have you guys ever been to like a state fair where they have that? Yeah. Gravity ride. It's like the worst thing ever. I will never, ever go on it ever again. And watching Bond do it was triggering. Well, that one actually, that messed up Roger Moore pretty badly because they were blasting air in his face and it wound up bruising his face. So they had to do some serious makeup after that one just to simulate those effects. Well, you know, he was 51 filming this movie, so he was already past prime Bond Bond age, even though he continued to play Bond for another six years. Yes. So uh, they had to stop filming this movie a little bit while he had kidney stones, which yeah. is not super romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Ro- Roger's a fun one to hear talk about all this. And we get it's almost like a rehash, but it it's slightly different because we've got a Drax master race coming on here of an infertility plot we see this on on her majesty's secret service blofeld was going to make everyone infertile and it was under the cruel guise of an allergy study and as someone that suffers from allergies i really don't appreciate that but drax is breeding what turned out to be parisian models he's picking them to repopulate the earth which is all kinds of creepy and he doesn't seem qualified, but nevertheless, do you like Hugo Drax? Bears, we'll start with you. Is he the kind of deliciously evil bad guy, or is he missing the mark in your Bond rogues gallery? I actually think he's one of the dullest Bond villains. I mean, it's first of all, it's fairly obvious that he's the bad guy from the very <laughs> first, first, yes. first time they meet, right? So it's like... Uh, I don't even know why that the, the movie goes past uh, scene, you know, 15 when they're in his mansion, which he's moved uh, stone by stone from France into California for seemingly no reason. Uh, and <laughs> because he could, <laughs> because he could. Uh, I mean, he's just he's very dull as a person. And I also I don't quite understand why he felt the need to remove most of humanity from the planet so that he could take it over i mean he's got money i i just didn't quite understand his reasoning behind this other than he wants maybe everybody to look like models but to me this infertility plan means we're at least a couple generations away um from uh really being able to repopulate the earth plus it doesn't make any sense if you wipe everybody off the planet except for like the the hundred people you have on like the spaceship you're going to come back to the planet with very little ability to do anything. I mean, who's going to pick up your garbage? Who's going to, like, make sure that there's power stations so that you can watch television? Who's going to create television? I mean, it it makes no logical sense. Who would want to live in that world? He's super impatient, too, because the entire plot around stealing the Moonraker, which ultimately gives him away, is he had a failure in one of his other six Moonraker stations. So instead of just, like, building a sixth one... He steals one that's being carried on an airplane that weirdly has all its fuel on it. And yeah, he's he's just like, they said, why did, why did you take this? Why did you fake this? He just goes, well, you had a problem with another one. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're just super impatient. I guess I get it. Why not? To to borrow a line with from Zoolander. But why male models? Yes. <laughs> so Lizzie, did you enjoy Hugo Drax? Is he your kind of bad guy? There's some with you. I think to me the best villain of all time. It not necessarily naming a specific villain, but just I want a villain that gives me layers so that I like them so much that now I'm kind of feeling conflicted as to whether or not I want him to be successful. And <laughs> uh, like, a, like a Hannibal Lecter, if you will, like somebody where it's like, I know you're totally evil, but there's just something about you that now I find myself intrigued by you. And so I I would have appreciated a little bit more layers to Drax. I appreciate that, that this isn't the, that type of movie, but then I would argue, well, if you're not going to give me layers, then at least make him funny, you know, give me like a Dr. Evil or something that I, I don't know. I just, I feel like he really lacked any kind of depth. I mean, no, no offense to, to Michael uh, Lonsdale, but I just kind of think you could have plucked anybody and put them in that role. And I just, I think he's pretty forgettable, unfortunately, no offense to him, but that's my take. Yeah. Bears kind of hit right on it for me. He looks evil and good for him. Maybe that's just what they're going for, but you're unable to suspend your disbelief of, okay, this clearly is the bad guy. The second you meet him, bad guy bad guy eyebrows like right there you you know so i i can see where you're coming from lizzie where even with thanos like you meet half of the population you're like okay thanos you have a point i can understand snapping your fingers getting rid of half the population (laughs) like on any given day when i'm driving i i kind of wish there would be a thanos snap (laughs) <laughs> I mean, even in earlier uh, Bonds, and if you think about Doctor No, I mean, he's at least charming. Yes, you know, he knows how yes. to he knows how to work the system and to meet people and to like you know use his influence. And you and you wouldn't assume he's a bad guy right off the bat. You know, I, I you would assume that like, well, he's probably not a straight dealer, but that doesn't mean he has some diabolical plot. Um, yeah, I think this one is it's just too obvious. Yeah, and it it is a weird weird plot of i'm going to repopulate the earth with models i'm i'm assuming the people that are on the space station that are the engineers are part of what's preserving the technology so that i covered that plot hole i i think but to your point yeah we are going to have some very sexy trash collectors and very sexy janitors i i I don't i mean we probably do there are probably very sexy janitors out there shout out to you for what you're doing but it uh you can find them on only fans yes yes it it just doesn't it's a strange plot and yeah the entire earthly economy will collapse due to these hundred models like not gestation is nine months <laughs> so uh we'll move on to our bond girl every bond film has got to have a bond girl and here we have dr holly goodhead name notwithstanding or maybe you like the name what do you think of lois chili's performance bears 
I mean, obviously, this is one of the classic names of all time for, yeah. for a Bond Bond girl. You're a um, woman. <laughs> I, I thought she – I actually thought she was a pretty good foil for Bond. She doesn't necessarily fall for him right away, and she also doesn't ever trust him. And it turns out clearly because, you know, she's in the CIA, so she is – you know, built to be suspicious, but it is nice that we have a character who I think, you know, would be able to continue in the franchise if they ever did that. Um, she, she is, she can hold her own. She can fight, she can shoot, um, and she's not an idiot. So she's not, she's not just somebody who looks pretty in a dress. Whereas I think the pilot of the helicopter uh, is definitely somebody who just looks pretty in a dress, and she gets fed to dogs. Yes. Yeah. What a harsh death there. It's like I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not going to outrun those Dobermans. This isn't going to end well for you. How did she get back on the golf cart? That was the big question that I had. Of like, you drove up on a golf cart. And then you see that there are dogs chasing you. Why don't you just get back on the golf cart? You have a way better chance with four wheels than two legs. But, you know, I mean, who, you, who am just, I? <laughs> you just came off a horror movie. They need to make the worst possible decision. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's run to the cemetery. Yes. Hide behind the chainsaws. Yes. I love that commercial so, so very much. Lizzie, did you like Dr. Goodhead? I, I heard you giggling a little bit while having to read that. I'm so glad you had to read that. Sorry. Okay, so again, I had never seen this movie before, so I had zero expectations. And I grew up, like I saw Austin Powers when it came into theaters. I remember like the, you know, like the Ivana Humpalot yes. character and being like, oh my gosh, and having zero context and knowing that the movies are heavily satirical for James Bond. But seeing this, it's like, okay, so Dr. Goodhead, that's, yeah, okay, that's funny. And then <laughs> Drax is like, okay, we're going to take you to go see Dr. Goodhead. And I'm like, surely this is going to be a male doctor. Like, they aren't going to be that obvious that this is a woman saying, I am Dr. Goodhead. And I was just like, okay, you know what? They they did it, and uh, they sure did. Um, <laughs> name, <laughs> name, name aside, that's one of those amazing things, just to quickly go back to that, though, that as a child just flies right over your head. You know, you have those movies where you watch them when you're a kid and then you revisit them as adults and then you can appreciate the humor so much more now that you're old enough to understand it. So as far as her as an actual character, I I, I liked her. I, I appreciated that she was, uh, as Barry said, that she, you know, she was independent and she could hold her own. She was kind of a little bit like an equal. Um, but I got to say, I felt like I had whiplash with this movie because I know that Goodhead is the is the like official Bond girl, but in the beginning, you know, he's groping that woman on the plane. And I'm like, oh, this is the Bond girl. Oh, nope. okay, nope, she's not. She's bad. Oh, okay, oh, so this is woman with pilot, Corinne. Oh, nope, because she gets eaten by dogs, and Bond doesn't even care to go back and figure out what happened to her. Justice for Corinne, and then it's <laughs> and then and then it's. And then, you know, he has his fling with Goodhead. But then he goes to Rio and just completely forgets about Goodhead. And then it's all about um, Manuela. So then I'm just like, I have whiplash with you. I think that you have a problem, Bond. I think you need to, you know, maybe look inward and figure out why. It it is clearly his weakness. But, yeah, usually the 
at least in these earlier ones, the first one, maybe even two women that you meet, like one of them's dying a horrible, horrible death. Rest in peace, Strawberry Fields. She is the one that gets famously coated in gold. As far as names, I really want you to see Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore. Like we are not, that's a real thing. We are, we are just not trying. There's plenty of tool. That's another one. I mean, there's a, fantastic names and dr goodhead is right up there with just i feel like the just resentment coming from lois chillis when she meets roger moore she meets bond for the first time because bond's being a jerk he's like you're a woman and he's obviously making reference to the name but there's also a little bit of she's the she's a doctor she's a scientist she's an astronaut and then he come he doubles down on it. He's like, "Oh, so you're training to be an astronaut." And she whips out all of her credentials and just like, "I'm right up there." He he's trying to explain all of these things to her. I I hate the term, but I guess what they're doing is it's mansplaining back in the 70s like he keeps trying to explain things that she already knows and is an expert on. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think we I think we need to give the movie a little credit, too, though, for 1979, the fact that he's doing this and he's sort of um, criticized for it. Whereas 10 years earlier, Sean Connery, no, there would be no criticism at all. Sean Connery was just moving from woman to woman without, you know, anybody questioning, Um, you know, at least here, there's a little bit of a like the producers realizing that maybe bond is a bit of a misogynist and we yes. need to sort of point that out he is moving from woman to woman my wife referred uh today we were watching the movie my wife referred to those early women as the appetizer girls mm-hmm. um so because they come bef- they come before the main meal um so yeah there is always those often one of them is bad uh so that that it, that's pretty consistent but uh but you know for as far as bond girl goes i mean she can hold her own she's she she can fight she's smart and she doesn't you know she doesn't take a whole lot of crap from from bond you know she calls him out on on his on his poor manners yeah she is right up there with tracy who ultimately marries bond it's one of those weird stories but tracy bond is probably the ultimate hold your own but Dr. Goodhead here, you're, you're right. She's very qualified. She's very skillful. She does disappear halfway through the movie, and then just we find her sitting in a conference room, which is a bit strange. But yeah, she's great. And kudos to Lois Chiles. She was pregnant during this entire filming, so she is awesome for doing all of this. She was asked to be in the prior movie before this um and she she turned them down because she was uh, taking a little break from acting but but then apparently this this was good enough for her to come back yeah yeah have we got a role for you would you like to be dr goodhead (laughs) Why, why not and as silly as that name is we we've talked about some of the silliness this this movie is just it's at an 11 bears we'll start with you what was your favorite thing? Because we've got to have fun with this type of movie. What's your favorite silly thing that happened? What's something that kind of made you cringe? I mean, I think my favorite silly thing that happens is the entire love plot for Henchman Jaws. Uh, <laughs> with the classic <laughs> <'cause>, uh, <laughs> overture playing. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a character that had been, you know, a couple movies earlier, and he had been very popular, and so they brought him back. But apparently he was very popular with kids, so they wanted to find a, a way to make him nice or help Bond out at the end. So they give him a love interest about, you know, two-thirds of the way through the film, who then uh, is, is he's, you know, seven foot two, Richard Keel. So he's he's gigantic, and he meets this tiny little diminutive girl who looks like she's on the cover of the the swiss miss cocoa bottle and um (laughs) she's like you know a tiny human and somehow they end up on the space station for drax and 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 the way bond gets him to join up like like you said is jaws realizes that he's not going to be part of the perfect human plot but also i think more importantly neither is his his new girlfriend who who is tiny and and although very attractive not necessarily you know, a model or like, you know, svelte in the way that, you know, you have to be to be an astronaut. So, you know, the reason Jaws switches is for love and he gets complete redemption by the end of the film. And even though he goes spiraling out in a piece of the spaceship, we are told, you know, they're only a hundred miles from the, from earth. So they'll probably live. And even though we don't get confirmation of that, there was a plot written into the next movie uh, for your eyes only that Jaws was going to appear that did get lost uh, in the rewrites, but it was, it was planned that he lived. So we can just assume that he lived. He also appears in video games uh, for, for, uh, you know, uh, future generations of, of Bond fans. But that's, I think my favorite plot. That's just so ridiculous, but it, it just makes me, it just makes me smile because, we see so many henchmen in Bond and so few of them have, you know, any sort of development. And this is, this is really nice. And it's also really nice because it's a, it's an actor that he got along with Roger Moore. They were really good friends and they wanted to bring him back. So I think that works really well. I think the thing that doesn't work well, and you've already mentioned this is the laser, the laser fight at the end of the movie, which is <laughs> the, the Drax henchmen floating out from the spaceship with a platoon of us Marines floating out, um, the early version of the Space Force, apparently, um, floating out from the space shuttle with their lasers. And, um, yeah, it's a very slow-moving laser beam fight that I just don't think it's going to live up. Uh, even in 1979, it's not going to live up after Star Wars, even though, like, they make an attempt to, to like, be in space and get everything you could out of out of that plot. I think it, they, it was not where their skill set was at. Yeah. Those are both excellent. I I do want to point out that children are terrible writers, and we should never listen to their fan mail. Like what? It, children writing in just saying, "Hey, we like Jaws. Make him a good guy. Why does he have to be a bad guy?" Well, children, you're wrong. Jaws is a bad guy. He bites through cables. He, tr- I mean, we get introduced. His name is Jaws. He kills people. Like that's how we're introduced to Jaws. Yes. Eh? Which is fantastic. So don't... I'd like to point out that Bond also kills people. Yes. Yeah. He. He leaves there. that conveniently out. Lizzie, what's what's the silliness that made you smile, and what's something that you were just like, eh, I might be out on this? I think the whole gondola scene I loved so much because up until this point of, or that particular point of the movie I was watching, and kind of on the fence on how I felt about it because, you know, he's, at this point, he's gone to California, which, by the way, I was so confused that entire time because I'm watching being like, we're in California, right? I feel like we have yet to meet a single American. 
<laughs> in California. Like everybody they were transported has... with the stones. Right. That's, that's yeah. right. And I'm just like, are they in California? I'm just, I'm very confused. And so, um, you know, that whole thing, Chase happens, and then he's, uh, you know, with the dogs. And so now he's in Italy. And I hadn't quite decided how I felt about the movie and if it kind of where it was going to go. And so this whole gondola ride for me almost felt like the movie communicating to me, like, we don't take ourselves that seriously. Like, if you needed any kind of indication that this is supposed to be silly, like, this is it. Because that whole gondola ride, like, the coffin and, like, the man coming up at the coffin and, like, all of the little gadgets and then you've got you know, the lovers in the, they're doing like more of like a lover's lane ride and it gets like split in half and they're completely and then, oblivious. Yes. Yes. It's like, they're just so enthralled with each other. And then that, the fact that then it, you know, there's the inflatable that then takes them out of the water. And it's just, it was so ridiculously campy that watching it, I just, you couldn't help but laugh. And then it was like, kind of like the same thing with like the, you know, like the Dr. Goodhead name where you're like, there's just no way on God's green earth that you are trying to be serious. Like you, you, this is like, you have a sense of humor and you're trying to communicate that. So I, I liked that scene um, a lot. I think I hate to be a repeat offender, but I really have to agree that like, I think the end the whole end sequence for me got really tired. I actually found myself like pressing pause to be like, okay, how much of this do I have? Like, I've, I've, I'm sorry. Like the first half I really enjoyed. And then the, as the movie continued to go on, I feel like I just, the air kind of got pushed out of my tires. And once they were in space, I kind of lost a lot of interest. I just, I think once they introduced the lasers, it kind of made me cringe a little bit. That's fair. Yeah. Space should be the most exciting set piece here. And the set we'll talk about a little bit later, but I kind of tend to agree as as far for me, uh, there's so many fun things. I like setting up this really expensive priceless museum that for whatever reason, someone in Venice is explaining <laughs> what it would be in a, in us dollars. It's like you, you, you have a lira. It's a thing. You know, why, why are you, just saying, well, this would be one million U.S. dollars, and that's the only thing that sets up. And they just trash everything, and the little bowl yes. gets its own segment. Like you know, they're going to use the crystal sword. It is Chekhov's gun. Just like, oh, this is a one of a kind crystal sword. Like that's going to get used. That's going to get broken. But just everything else, just wanton destruction, and I am here for it. There's a Seven Up endorsement, like a massive Seven Up endorsement. I don't know if they were hurting for money. This was a huge budget. There are so many funny things that happen here. There's also a Christian Dior uh, obvious product placement too, when they're checking her perfume. Yes. Uh, and to, to see if it's you know death defying. Yeah. There there's several noted product placements in this movie that are they're slightly painful. Yeah. British Airways. Oh yeah. Gets tossed into a, into a billboard that is yes. a British Airways billboard in Brazil because that's a big flight, you know, you know, back and forth between Rio and and London. I don't think so. Yeah, the ambulance <laughs> fight, which is a statement in and of itself. The gondola ride you've mentioned is, is amazing, and I I've harped on the pigeon a little bit as as well as things that make me cringe, but yeah, I I think. I'm with all of you all. Like space should be 
the best part of this movie and it's the worst part of this movie and that makes me very very sad that laser fight could have been cut altogether we could have figured something else out but having what looks like an early rareware game where there are just little pixels going back and forth that's the that's the part of this movie that just did not hold up uh, we have talked a lot about Jaws, though, and he gets to come back. This is popular fan demand. He's one of the rare baddies that comes back. I'll put this out there. Is he an all-time great henchman? Is he up there with the odd jobs, the uh, knickknacks, and maydays of the world? Is he up there in the echelon of Bond henchmen? Arguably, he's the greatest henchman of all time, in my mind. But you know, I'm a Roger Moore fan, so I'm gonna I'm gonna err on the side of the people who faced off with him. But but because he gets that character development of of changing from being a bad guy to being a good guy and helping Bond, I mean, you can't expect any other henchman to have that. I think to get that kind of like depth in henchmen you have to wait until like uh an austin powers movie where they actually <laughs> spend more time on the henchmen than on anybody else yes yes i i like the the irishman in austin powers that they're after me lucky charms yes so, so many good ones frau was a great one as well lizzie was this your first experience with jaws had you seen any of the movies with him well the only no, other one this was my first, and I spent a good part of this movie staring at that actor, like the whole earlier sequence, staring at the actor, just trying to figure out where I knew him from. And then it hit me that Richard Keel is from Happy Gilmore. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's like the the guy that Adam Sandler used to work for, and he gets a nail in his in his head. Mm-hmm. And um, that shooter has to hit the ball off his foot. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's the only thing I've ever seen him in. But um, I to me, Jaws makes this movie watchable. Like I, I really do like Richard Moore. I think that I you know I even though I'm not super familiar with all of the Bond movies, I know of the different actors that have played Bond. And to me, he seems just campy enough that he can really pull it off but still i think even he isn't enough to make this movie 100 percent what it is i think that jaws kind of bringing his own kind of unique personality to it and, and the fact of the matter is that he you know he barely speaks it's like but that he just has so much personality in his little mannerisms and that creepy clown outfit that he puts on right. in rio and I don't know. I I like him, and I'm I'm with you, Bears, as well. That I think that also, you know, him having his little love story, and then being able to have a conscience to him as well. I mean, there's just there's a lot of layers, and I I really appreciated that. So he to me he he really made this movie for me. I feel like people probably lost their minds in 1979 seeing him dancing. And just throwing up his hands in the air as the revelers in Rio are like trying to get him to join in the dance, interrupting him, <laughs> trying to kill Bond, do a very serious job. And then he just throws his hands up in the air and just kind of starts bobbing to the music with them as he's being carried away. I yeah. like that. But you're right. That's, that's great. Okay. 
it's so hard to do the expressions and even just when he's standing behind bond with his arms crossed he just has this cocky look of like he's gonna turn around and he's gonna see me he's just such a giant guy i for me he is number one like bear said i do like odd job a lot i like the bowler hat that can knock off statue heads that is just ridiculous and cool but jaws has a actually both of them do have a mythbusters episode dedicated to them they actually tested if you could produce enough bite force to cut through a cable car rope the answer oh my god (laughs) the answer is no so so, oh yeah i know spoilers so what he was biting through was licorice which is better or worse depending on (laughs) on your opinion of black licorice but yeah they they actually made the teeth from these films and tried cutting different things they got through a lot but not cable uh look a little bit of uh, trivia about Richard Keel, just because I feel like, you know, we've talked about him so much that we're probably not going to get back to him. So I want to let this out there. He uh, co-authored a biography about abolitionist Cassius Marcius Clay uh, called uh, Kentucky Lion, which is really uh, kind wow. of like a high level thing to be doing. Right. And uh, he married a woman who is five foot one. Right. Um, so very similar. Uh, and they were married for 40 years until until his death. They had four children and nine grandchildren. Yeah. Wow. By all accounts, he's just a sweet, gentle man who happens to be an absolute giant. So that's that's awesome. I didn't know about him co-authoring a book on abolitionists. That is, that is awesome. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, last thing I'll bring up, Russell loves his skiing. This movie is much warmer locations. We are in Venice. We're in Rio partying. Uh, California, I, I guess, counts, but to Lizzie's point, there were times I'm like, they said California, right? Like, where? Cathedrals? What? What is happening? But do you? I'm not sure they shot that in California. I'm going to be honest. I think part of that, oh, they brought the they brought the French mansion brick by brick, was because they really had access to a French mansion, Um, (laughs) and and, and not anywhere in California. This was a this was an Anglo French uh, French production, so they probably had to shoot something in France in order to get the 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 money. Do yeah yeah that really wouldn't surprise me i didn't see if they actually filmed it in in california but that was probably to appease the american audience but do you like our locations do you like going to these warmer weather environments where we get anacondas and we get gondolas i have a lot of opinions on the locations uh let me first say the one location that you didn't talk about because it's like a non-location is the air in the very in the opening sequence when they jump out of the plane and they're falling through the air, it's actually one of the best uh, pre-title sequences in in Bond history. Agreed. Which is it's like a, a parachute fight. It's simple, um, you know, like with the Daniel Craig movies. Eventually, they started being like 25 minutes. This is a very simple thing, but it's it, it took 88 takes in yes. order to shoot shoot that. And and it that holds up. You want to talk about something that holds up? I I still can't believe that they you know did that. Um, but as far as locations go, you've got some amazing set designs that were created, especially for the the space station. But the, the, the place I really love is in the Amazonian jungle when they go upriver and somehow manage to see a Mayan temple 
right. um, which would be in Central America, and then go inside the Mayan temple, and it's apparently a hollowed out with a waterfall and a pool and some sort of giant, you know, you know, computer systems inside there. So that 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 location is ridiculous, but <laughs> but it's it still was amazing. Like I still enjoyed it, even though like I've been to like. I've been down to the Yucatan Peninsula enough to know like all of the things that they were showing were not naturally occurring um, towards, you know, anywhere together. And there is actually no orchid that killed out an entire group of people because it led to sterility. That's, that's all, that's all fake, but um, <laughs> it had this, the sense of being true. I don't know. I'm just wondering if there were any like Mexican American scholars, you know, who watched this and, and thought about the, the Mayans. Yeah, I thought, um, I thought they were going yeah. for Aztec, and Aztecs were not in Brazil at all. So it's like, okay, we just want to have a really cool indigenous temple for no good reason, which, whatever. It was a cool temple. It had a snake. It had one random dumping point for Bond that he just happened to be standing on. Like, that's the, the little launching platform that the women <laughs> throw him in. Yeah. <laughs> They could have just had it in Mexico, you know, instead of they really wanted to do something that felt like they were pulling from the Mayan culture. They could have just done that. And then they probably could have even played into the idea of the, the extinction of the Mayans in general, you know, maybe right. like pulled from actual history and then kind of taken some artistic liberties. You know, who knows? That could have been kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, Mexico has Carnival, so I, I'm not sure why they went to Rio. I mean, you know, it, the whole idea of going there in the first place seemed kind of like an unnecessary location. They went to Venice in search of like glass, which then they realized was like being used to like, you know, for to hold this virus. Right. And then they went to brazil for reasons i i'm sure I, I i'm sure we were explained but i don't really remember but that's where they saw the the uh ships taking off um from there like that there's a giant space base coming out of brazil i think someone would have noticed that yeah yeah our satellites are completely useless in this entire movie exactly <laughs> lizzie do you like our jet setting locations yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not mad at them, for sure. I mean, I've, I've been to Italy. Italy is gorgeous. So, I mean, I'm not mad at Italy. I've never been to Rio, but I, as I've said, I have been to Mexico. I went to Cancun, and then we went out to, like, the Chitza Nitsa area to actually see some old Mayan temples, and that was really a very cool experience. I appreciate what, what they were trying to do, but I also felt very confused by it, because, like I was saying, you know, the... The whole thing with Drax of being in California and then everybody having some kind of thick, ambiguous accent. And I'm just like, I'm not sure what I'm watching. And I I think with the glass being done in Italy and then the orchid being done in Rio, I, I appreciate why they wanted to do all of that. But I think there could have been a, a little bit more of a natural cadence from place to place. Uh, but, you know, alas, I mean, I'm not going to be mad at a pretty backdrop. So it was it was fine, but they, they probably could have made it a little smoother. Those waterfalls in the Amazon where he hang glides over, those are stunning. And we get a, yes. a beautiful shot, too, of the woman under the waterfall that kind of just acts as a siren and Bond can't resist. Because here's a beautiful woman in a white dress under a picturesque waterfall 
luring him to his death. But he's like, yeah, I might be able to sleep with her. Off I go. And so, and that that's what ultimately leads to him fighting an anaconda in a pool. So yeah, that's <laughs> I I I don't need a reason most of the time for him going to these exotic locations. I it's just all part of Bond. It's flimsy. It's just here's a cool place that we want to go and film with beautiful scenery, and we want to do some crazy stunts. This time in a gondola, and this time in a cable car, or in a speedboat with mines and blow things up and toss dummies into the air. All of that, all that's good stuff for me. Uh, this, we will talk about our cast a little bit. Benjamin, this is a Roger Moore Bond. Bernard Lee, he's our M in this movie. This is his final appearance. Uh, we've talked about Lois Chili's with Holly Goodhead. There were a lot of people up for this. Barbara Bach, who plays uh, Anya in The Spy Who Loved Me. She was scheduled to come back, but she was dropped a few weeks prior to filming. Uh, Frank Sinatra was offered the role of Drax, and he was also offered the title sequence instead of Shirley Bassey. So I think that's intriguing to me. The, that would have been cool. Yeah. Um, also, also offered singing the title song, Kate Bush. Okay. All right. So Ooh. running up the hill. I was going to say, that's yeah. bad. She's back in a big way right now. I didn't yeah, see that. This is 1979. She hadn't even, she hadn't even run up that hill yet. But she, <laughs> yeah. had visited, she had visited Wuthering Heights, which was her, her big hit that came out in, in England in 78. So she was very new and, and fresh. Yeah. I, I like Shirley Bassey's voice so much. The theme doesn't work for me that well, but. It's hard to imagine a different voice. Uh, the Car- disco version at the end is actually much better than the original version. I that agree. plays during the opening title sequence, yeah. I agree. Uh, Carol Bouquet, she was interviewed for the female lead. She winds up, if the name sounds familiar, she's the lead role in For Your Eyes Only. We get a Charlie's Angel, Jacqueline Smith. She was originally cast as Holly Goodhead. But conflicts with that show caused her to drop out. We do get Tanya Roberts later on, so we do get our Charlie's Angel fix. And Kim Basinger, she turned down a role in this movie. So I I think that would have been interesting. It doesn't say who she was up for. I don't know if that was the lead role or not, but Kim Basinger intrigues me. But I think the one that stands out there, would you guys want Frank Sinatra as Drax, or is, is it just... He's replaceable with anyone. I mean, yeah, anybody would have been better. That guy was so... Apparently, James Mason was also looked at for that from North by Northwest. So oh, okay. I, I think anybody you could have, like, some personality. If it was Frank Sinatra, I might be more willing to, like, believe that he was a good guy. You know, this guy was just... He was just too evil. <laughs> yeah, I, I get criticized for having slightly bushy eyebrows, but that guy... Like you, you just you got to trim those back if you want people to believe that you're not attempting to sterilize the entire planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To me, it feels like watching um, again, kind of drawing. I, I know that this movie clearly is well before Austin Powers, and Austin Powers would never exist if these Bond movies hadn't been previously made. But since I saw Austin Powers first. I just I feel like I see a lot of parallels kind of drawn, particularly with Dr. Evil and Drax a little bit, just Mm -hmm. almost in like the drama. But that's 
what I would have actually liked to have seen in place of Drax is somebody that actually is like that, isn't afraid to kind of go there and be over the top. And I think Frank Sinatra, I mean, I don't necessarily know if he'd be able to give you a comedic effect, but I think he'd at least be able to be charming and enough to, like you said, make you question whether or not he's good or not. And then maybe even possibly make you feel a little conflicted about whether or not you agree with his evil plan. Yeah. Yeah. I, he would definitely nail the charm and I feel like he could bring kind of the old fashioned wit to it as well. It wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be like ham it up, but I, I, that's going to come up later for me. Uh, So this, this was an original Ian Fleming novel. It says it's based on Moonraker. That's kind of debatable. Just about every character is wildly changed everything that happens in the book, but this was just pushed uh, because of Star Wars and the success of Star Wars. So we get that in here. Albert Broccoli, who's famous for the Bond series, he is our producer. Lewis Gilbert is our director as well. Uh, Gilbert is famous for Alfie. He does You Only Live Twice, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. So he does visit the Bond franchise as well. Um, you know who who put forth an idea that to, to wanting to direct this film was Steven Spielberg. Really, I do yeah, know they contacted Spielberg, him. Steven Spielberg uh, uh, contacted uh, Albert and said, "Hey, I, I hear you're going to make this Moonraker movie." Uh, he had actually had already asked to make the movie prior to this, the You Only Live Twice, um, and had been turned down, and uh, he was turned down again. It was a childhood dream of his to direct a, a Bond film, which he never never got to do. So Well, they do contact him, because if you'll notice on the keypad for our sci-fi fans, it's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's that five-note motif. They Broccoli called up Steven Spielberg and said, hey, can I use this? And later on, Spielberg called up broccoli and said hey can i use the 007 theme in one of my movies and broccoli responded kind of tongue-in-cheek he goes well that's more than five notes so (laughs) spielberg was like oh okay okay we'll work this out but yeah this we'll talk about the set the set is wild there that space station it took Two tons of nails, 100 tons of metal, 220 technicians, 10,000 feet of construction woodwork. It's the largest set ever built in France. And I know we criticize the space station quite a bit, or at least the space portion, but were you at least impressed a little bit with what they managed to build here as far as our set? I mean, I felt like it was on a space station. I think they did a good job. Yeah. I mean, also, you got to remember, it's 1979, so we haven't had as many versions of space stations, you know, to, to be built ahead of time. So they, they weren't like, pulling from too many sources. They had to really decide what their space station was going to look like. Yeah. To give give people an idea, this is the first time a an accurate depiction of a space shuttle appeared on film. So to Bear's point... We're in pretty much uncharted territory here. You wouldn't think of Bond as groundbreaking, but in a lot of manners here, it is. Lizzie, did you like our space station? Yeah, I loved it. I think anytime you're watching a movie that uh, that is done in you know the 70s or you know anytime before 
technology was really able to advance and, and go into that CGI piece, you have to kind of look at it from the lens of the fact that these things are being built. And I, I mean, I think it was super impressive and super really realistic looking given what they had to do with it. I, the set had nothing to do with why I didn't like the sequence. Yeah. It's unfortunate as to why I just, to me, I think that they gave themselves the perfect canvas and, you know, maybe just picked the wrong paint. I like if that. If you will. Yeah. Ooh, good metaphor. Is, yeah. yeah you know, the thing is they saw star Wars and they were like, Ooh, we want to make a movie set in space. And so they were like, well, you know, let's use this Moonraker novel because, you know, that's set in space. But Moonraker, the novel, actually isn't set in space. They right. never go to space. They never go to the moon. It's Moonraker is the name of a missile project. And there is a, you know, a, an industrialist whose name is Drax who is making this missile. Pretty much that's the only thing that they kept from the book at all. So uh, to me, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about going to space and whether that was not as interesting as some of the other locations and why they needed to go so many locations. Like you got all excited about making this movie because you wanted to go to space. And yet that's what one fourth of the location and, uh, and probably the dullest part of the plot. It's very simple once we get up there and the shooting down the, the space pods at the end um, is like a, yeah, it's a bad video game. It's, it doesn't even live up to stay on target, stay on target <laughs> with uh, Luke, Luke going down the trenches of the dark star. It's, it's really, it's really a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a tough legacy to live up to uh, wardrobes, costumes and makeup. I always feel like they're a whole lot of fun. Bears start with you comments on our bond wardrobe or, uh, whether it's the women, whether it's Bond himself. Well, the women's dresses look amazing. Yes. They are these these flowy, soft silks. I mean, it really feels like it's pulled right out of the pages of, you know, fashion magazines of the time. Um, and uh, and so that's really great. And then you've got the fun costuming in um, in Rio when you, you see Carnival. And, you know, that gives a real sense of, of life. I think the... Um, the, the astronauts uniforms or the uniforms when they're up on on the space station are, are pretty damn dull and, and, yeah, and could have been yeah I think they just look like janitors mm-hmm. um, and Bond doesn't you know he doesn't get to particularly wear anything interesting he's just wearing jackets and you know I mean he, he there's no there's no undercover aspect of this other than I guess wearing the space the janitor space suit so mm. okay. Lizzie, how about you? Did anything wardrobe, costume stick out to you? Yes. So, well, first, I think, uh, bears to your point, I think the absence of a tuxedo stuck out to me. I, I don't know uh, if yeah. I recall him. I don't ever remember seeing him wear a tuxedo. He did once, Which, yeah. to me, it's just like that's the staple of every Bond picture. So I think the fact that he didn't wear that more often stuck out, stuck out to me. But one thing, I guess it's just – also bears to your point the the flowy dresses, particularly their nightgowns, uh, really stuck out to me because I think that that is something that I think has changed so much in our culture. And like bears, you can tell me if you if you will agree with me. It's like women, we go to bed 
I feel like in the 70s, there was just like uh, really any time before I would say maybe the 90s or early aughts, there was just like this glamour kind of constantly. And then I think slowly and slowly we've shifted into comfort over glamour, which I'm not fully mad at, but I don't own any <laughs> fancy flowy nightgowns. And I'm like watching them as they go to bed. And I know that they're, of course, setting a scene for like this, you know, like love making with, with Bond. But I'm also just like, man, I need to get me like, Flowy, silk nightgown. Like I need to feel like fancy when I go to bed. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, they. I mean, they made the women look so beautiful. Um, yes. For their for their showdowns with Bond, whether the showdown was fighting or or um, sexual, but yeah, I I think that the nightgowns are something special. You guys are on adore me in the middle of watching this. Like, where sexy nightgown? <laughs> I I had. <laughs> I had questions like here's where my mind goes to is what is the dress code for Drax Industries? Like they they have no uniforms. There are guys wearing geese for no reason. I I don't know if it was an official rule or what what, but I don't think a single employed woman was wearing a bra during <laughs> any of his work. Yes. There uh, the dresses were beautiful, but that that became obvious of just wear whatever you want to this professional industry in the 70s, and that does not happen. Like, you cannot show up in a gi to work in an industrial job. That that just, that won't, uh, that won't fly, but I guess we had to establish that this person is of Asian descent, so we're going to put him in, in that. Um, I, w- I will point out, this is really interesting. This is the only bond where his signature gun isn't present. He actually doesn't have his Walther PPK or P99. And the only time he shoots anything is the one guy trying to kill him during the pheasant scene. So, Roger, he, yeah. Roger Moore he, has he a famous He says that distaste. he doesn't like shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's real life. Roger Moore has a distaste for blood sport. He genuinely does not like, didn't like that pheasant scene. I, yeah, I'll... I'll talk about that in a minute as well, but it's genuine disgust from Roger Moore, so he's he's not a fan of that. Our our special effects, I did mention, we called up Steven Spielberg for the keypad. We almost killed a stuntman uh, in this movie, which is never great, but that cable car scene, the stuntman slipped. He was dangling off the car in real life, and there was no one to help him. They were all shooting from a distance, so... That guy thankfully pulled himself up, but it could have gone very, very poorly. We've seen stunt person deaths in recent movies, the one with Alec Baldwin. We're using real lasers, so that's that's cool that we're using real lasers for some of the special effects. I just, I wish it had shown up better in the end product. Any comments on the special effects, the stunts, any stunts stand out to you that you guys like? Well, I already mentioned the opening opening sequence with the, the jumping out of the plane. I, I think that still holds up and is phenomenal. Um, other than that, you know, I mean, it was nominated for special effects for for Academy Awards. So it must have been 
well received. I'm, I'm guessing that might be for miniatures work, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I just, I, you know, I, and and they did simulate a launch of a space shuttle before that had actually ever happened. You know, they had to kind of guess what that would be like, which you know they knew sort of what the space shuttle was going to look like, but they didn't know what it would look like to launch, and also the idea of launching off the top of the plane that had never happened before. Um, for a you know like a, a spacecraft so that you know they're they're inventing these things and they all they all look pretty realistic so i think that's that's pretty solid yeah you know that to do that and still hold up today as far as what a launch would look like they i agree they nailed that lizzie I'm with you, Bears. I, I love the opening sequence. I thought that grabbed my attention immediately and made me excited to watch the rest of the movie. Because I, him being, I didn't, you know, you eventually obviously know that he's going to survive. I mean, this would be a very short movie if he if he didn't. But, but just figuring out, seeing that he's gotten pushed out of the plane, how exactly is he going to get in touch with the other person that's just jumped out, get a hold of their parachute, getting it buckled just in time. I mean, it was, to me, that was by far the most exciting moment of the movie, I would say. I was truly, like, excited and on the edge of my seat during that scene, for sure. It's fantastic and may come up again. Uh, Press for time, so I will just briefly mention... We've talked about Shirley Bassey and the Moonraker and the reprise. She does do two other Bond themes. She does Goldfinger, which is, I think, the standard of all Bond songs. And she also does Diamonds Are Forever. So this came to her kind of through serendipity because a lot of people, Frank Sinatra turned it down. Johnny Mathis was approached. Mathis was unhappy about it. He drops it. So John Barry winds up offering it to Shirley Bassey just weeks before release. So she had very little time. It's still a great song. She's got such a wonderful voice. So rest for time, but I I will throw out a little kudos to Shirley Bassey. What I do want to throw out as far as kudos are movie superlatives. So are you all ready to hand out some awards for us? Yes, let's do it. Do it. Bears, who's your MVP of Moonraker? I think it should be going to be pretty obvious from the conversation we've had. I, I, I'm going to say it's Jaws. Oh, wow. Richard Richard Keel. Keel. Great choice. Okay, that's excellent. I love me some Jaws. Lizzie, who's your MVP? You know, I put Roger Moore because I tried to imagine this movie with Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig, and I, I really couldn't. I feel like he... Roger Moore, and to be fair, I'm not a huge, I don't know a lot of, of his work, so I'm really green when it comes to, to his filmography, but I really enjoyed him in this movie, and to me it just, this was a fun watch in the sense that there was a campiness and had some kind of satirical moments dripped in there, and I just, I don't know if, if the bonds that I know could have done that. So I, I feel like kudos to Roger Moore for being able to make that happen. He definitely has his unique stamp on the franchise, and he's my pick too. I think he's just so car- charming and classy, but he's also not afraid to have fun during those silly moments. So my favorite bond, I have to pick him for my MVP, although I do love Jaws. Bears, who is your best supporting actor? 
Well, since I already picked Jaws for MVP, I feel like I can't do that again here. Um, so uh, I'm going to give a shout out for supporting actor uh, to Desmond Llewellyn, who plays Q. Um, and he's always fun to see on screen in all the Bond movies, but I think in this film, he's got some a combination of some things that, that really do get used uh, during the film, and also some, like we talked about, some kind of ridiculous toys and gadgets that he has to explain. And he's on screen, I think he has three different times on screen, which is, is less, uh, I mean, it's more than, than normal. So I, I thought, I thought it's, it's always fun to see him, and I think this is one of his, his better Bond films. I love Q. Lizzie, who's your best supporting actor? So no surprise here, but I, this is where I chose Jaws. I I love Jaws, and you know I think we've talked agnosium about how Drax is like kind of just forgettable, and so I think without Jaws, you really don't have much on the villain side of things, and so I really think that he makes this movie what it is, and just elevates it. Yeah, we are stride for stride, Lizzie. I went with Jaws as well. Got to get him in, Bear. Bears probably did the right thing with MVP. He's just wonderful. Yes. Not enough praise can be heaped in Richard Keel's direction. Hidden Jim, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. Bears, did you pick the pigeon? <laughs> I did not, <laughs> but I did love. I did love that. I think that's. Uh, you know, I didn't notice it. I think my eyes had looked away from the screen, and my wife was like, "Oh, you got to turn that back." There, there, <laughs> there was the pigeon just did a double take. You had so, to do a double take uh, for the pigeon double yeah. take. <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give a shout out to Sir Frederick Gray, who plays the Minister of Defense, because he sets up maybe the greatest Bond. Uh, line of all time at least the the greatest roger moore bond line when he says my god what is bond doing oh, yes. and q says i think he's attempting re-entry sir <laughs> 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 so uh yeah and we had seen i think that actor had been in a couple other bonds uh as the same minister of defense so he, he he doesn't get a whole lot of uh screen time but he he does end up playing like the very dull bureaucracy that compares to money penny and q and m that we have at at uh, at the ministry that is that is wonderful and i still i can't wrap my head around zero g sex like that just it doesn't work but lizzie <laughs> what's your hidden gem uh my hidden gem is the gigantic rubber snake that robert moore <laughs> i almost picked that <laughs> Would have been three for three. My my oldest son has a gigantic stuffed snake that we got for the zoo for him. And I I've gotta tell you, it looks like scale for scale like like that snake. And um to me, I mean the obviously the snake is very real as it's going into the water and then it slowly gets larger and larger in size as it's wrapping its fake body around Robert Moore. <laughs> And uh, Roger Moore, and it just, it, that was like, I, I audibly laughed watching that just because it was so campy and ridiculous. And uh, kind of, again, to kind of go back to Jaws, it reminded me a little bit of the Happy Gilmore scene when uh, Adam Sandler fights a, a gator. Yes. And it's like, just, it's like they, they're trying to make it look fake for comedic effect. That's really how that felt to me. And it, it just made me laugh out loud. 
Yeah, rest in peace, Goofy Prop Snake. That's right. <laughs> I went with the Parade Revelers. I mentioned them before. If you can get Jaws to dance and go along with you while saving Bond in the process, you are the hidden gems of this movie. You saved Bond's life through dance and just having a good drunken time. So kudos to the Rio Revelers. Bears, who are you recasting? I feel like we, we're going to be hard on one individual. I think we're all going to cast recast Drax. Yeah. Um, we've already talked about some... Uh, specific choices that they had at the time that they didn't go with. So I'll, I'll give one um, that I've just been thinking about who uh, I, from the time period that I think could have been interesting. Uh, I'm going to go with a young Donald Sutherland. Uh, actually, he could have been an American industrialist. I think that would have worked. That would have helped a lot. But he he has sort of a lanky frame that I can see him thinking that uh, you know he knows better than the rest of the world as to what humans should look like. <laughs> um, I love he had, that. He had just done things like Mash, um, and uh, Clute. He had won a big award for Clute, and um, he had uh, he had done Fellini's Casanova. So like he had just done Animal House. He was he was definitely somebody that people would have gotten excited about seeing, uh, but he wasn't a huge name yet. So I love that, Lizzie. Who are you recasting? Well, no surprise that I'm I'm recasting Drax, yeah. um, and I I wanted to replace him with Tim Curry. Ooh. I um, I just I think that he I think would be able to match the campiness, and honestly I I cherish Tim Curry. To me, he is such a Renaissance actor. He can do so much. He has so much range that if you wanted him to be just like completely evil, disgustingly wretched guy. I think he could totally play that. But if you wanted him to be funny and cheesy and campy and kind of go along with this world, I think he could do that too. If I think he could be a hybrid of, of everything. I just, I think he, he would have brought so much charm to, to such a forgettable role. I will never reject a recast with Tim Curry. Like Love him. We, Every time he shows up in an episode, it's like, okay, we know who our MVP is going to be. It's, it's Tim, yes. Tim Curry. You can't help it. Love it. I I went after poor Drax, too. Poor Michael Lonsdale. Like, you don't deserve this. You just need a different role. But uh, the mystique of the bad guy being slowly revealed, it was just ruined by his face. And that's an awful thing to say. But I... <laughs> I want Sinatra. I want this handsome guy who I can believe is going to be like, hey, I want models repopulating the earth instead of looking like Michael Lonsdale. You want someone that's that's charming and just kind of oozes suave and sex appeal. And I think someone like Frank Sinatra with those piercing blue eyes, like he's that guy. So, yeah, I want Frank Sinatra here. Best shot. And I've I'll be honest, I found this movie to have a bunch of great shots, but Bears, what is yours? I think we, we mentioned the uh, fight in the glass factory, the yes. glass museum. Uh, there's a particularly good moment in it where they're fighting uh, next to a stained glass uh, 
uh, the thing that you see at the back of a chapel, the, the rose window. Oh, yes. And uh, they're mo- moving closer and closer to it, and then you get revealed that there's a, a party going on down there, and then he gets pushed out of that out of that window and ends up in the piano. And Roger Moore's got a great, great <laughs> one-liner where he says, play it again, Sam. Yeah, stop um, misquoting but- Casablanca. Darn this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's, but that, I really enjoyed that that scene. That blue light in the that's, scene, that, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, that that was gorgeous. Lizzie, what's yours? So I went with so to set up the context. Bonds in Rio, and he sees the beautiful woman dressed in white, and he follows her into the lair, and this all setting up the scene with you know him fighting the gigantic rubber snake. And um, but there's a really cool scene where they do this kind of bird's eye shot where all of these women emerge and they're kind of surrounding him. And then there's a little, you know, the little pond area where, where the snake is. And just that kind of look down of Bond being surrounded by these beautiful women. I had no idea what was about to happen. So the, the shot itself was visually one, visually beautiful, but two. It also was a really exciting scene because they just kind of stood there for a little bit and let you stare at what was happening. And that gave me enough time to really play around different scenarios in my mind of being like, okay, hold on. Are these women that Bond has all slept with and they're all coming to exact justice on him for ghosting them? Or (laughs) is this like a, or or is is this going to be like an Austin power situation where they're going to be fembots or is, you know, what's, what's going to happen. And I was, I, you know, I was a little underwhelmed with, with the, uh, with the overall take of all the women and all the things, but overall that scene was, was exciting to watch. That would be a great movie. All the women that Bond has scorned. Right. <laughs> it would take a while to get through, but yes. I imagine it would, seeing how he made his way through quite a few women in this one. Uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I think the count was 13, something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Yeah. Goodness. Yep. It was literally scheduled. My best shot was we mentioned the wonderful parachute fight but there's a tracking shot where you just see hands as he's tracking the man falling uh, with the parachute. And he, before he just makes himself uh, fall faster, you just get these wonderful shots during that fight. So the entire thing was amazing. Look, Bears pointed out they did 88 jumps to do it. So uh, for two minutes of pure action, so many great shots during all of that. And most of it really was during the jumps. So it's mounted to, cameras mounted to stunt persons. Not very much of it was done against painted backdrops or anything. Awesome scene. Uh, Best scene, Bears. Uh, My favorite, I'm going to go with my favorite moment in the film uh, is the scene between Jaws and his girlfriend after they're stuck on the, uh, they're stuck on a space station and you don't know if they're going to, die or not but they pop up in a bottle of champagne which jaws of course removes with his teeth and he has his only line in two movies where he says well here's to us and uh and they share a glass of champagne and it's just a sweet moment you know even though they're dying it just it really it it um seals up his storyline really nicely yes kudos to the jaws lizzie 
That's an awesome choice. You know, I uh, I went with the gondola sequence because as campy as it is, it was kind of the turning point for this movie for me. It made me really appreciate it and get excited to continue watching it. So I just think the ability to not take itself so seriously and just be over the top, um, I really enjoyed. Excellent. Excellent. Anytime you cut a gondola in half, that's good stuff. That's right. Yeah. For me... And reading about how a homeless get a stuntman killed, well, that's not cool. But the cable car scene, it made me nervous even prior to knowing that. And knowing someone almost died, yeah, that I feel pretty justified in being nervous for everyone up there. And I think that's just such a tense fight scene. So for me, that is my best scene in the movie. We've talked about wonderful makeup, but Bears, what is your best wardrobe or makeup in this movie? Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to, to the aforementioned nightgown that Corinne uh, DeFore wears um, after, you know, being a helicopter pilot and then uh, and Bond visiting her in her in her chambers in the evenings. Beautiful white silk nightgown. Um, yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous. Lizzie, what's your best wardrobe? Oh man, I had the nightgowns as well. I they um I'm sorry to to be a broken record, but I it was the most memorable thing for me. It was the number one thing that I wrote down and it really truly did make me feel like I need to go out and buy fancy nightgowns for myself. Yeah, I'm gonna go with someone we didn't talk a whole lot about was Manuela. She has this gorgeous orange dress during the uh, Carnival, and she just looks stunning against this colorful backdrop of Rio. So I really thought of all the all the beautiful nightgowns, like the pop of color in the orange dress. Just I, I thought she looked gorgeous. Change one thing, and only one thing about this movie, Bears. What are you <laughs> changing? Um, I'm I'm gonna change something. I'm gonna change the continuity after this movie. I would like to have seen. Goodhead return as a recurring character as the American operative that that Bond has to deal with for the next several movies, which would be really interesting considering they hooked up and obviously he moved on to other people. I think um, if if this movie was made today, uh, you would definitely have a little more of that sort of realism. And I I think she was a really interesting character and could have uh, could have pulled something like that off. All right, I want her back too. I I like that. Lizzie, what are you changing? I, I'm fine with the idea that Bond loves his women. You know, I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum. If he wants to sleep around, then like that is his absolute prerogative. Uh, but I would have loved to have seen more of the women kind of take after Goodhead and the fact that it's like everybody is just dying to sleep with James Bond. And I think in real life that that's probably not always the case. Like I, I mean, I'm sure he would get a lot of tail, but I think, you know, like he goes to uh, like, he just walks into Corinne's room and he doesn't, he doesn't even like try to woo her or talk to her. He just kind of like basically plants one on her and, Then they go for it, and I'm just like, dude, you're not even trying. Like, throw out a little romance. And then in Manuela, it's even worse when he goes to Manuela. You know, she makes his martini shaken, not stirred for her, and then they talk about what they have to do that evening. And he's like, oh, well, I know what we can do uh, that will take up five hours. 
And if any man that I had just met ever said that to me, I don't care how handsome he was. I wouldn't be so grossed out if somebody was like, oh, like, I'm just going to take my take your ribbon on your dress and pull it apart and just suggest what we're going to do for five straight hours. I'd be like, you know, we have cards. We can play a card game, can continue to drink. And if it if it leads just spending the night together, then that's great. But maybe you should just get to know me first a little bit. So I would have loved to see somebody give Bond, teach him a little humility, I suppose, in mm. the in the womanizing department. I think that he could he could have someone give him his run for him, run for his money. That's fair. I mean, if if anyone said to me, I know what we're doing for the next five hours, I would assume it's l- watching Lord of the Rings extended editions. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's a that's a long time and maybe that's an indictment on me and I'll get my emails, emails and hate mail of like, uh-huh. but yeah, five hours. It's a long time. Five hours is a really long time. I think any adult woman would tell you that five hours is um, it's a lot for your. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's. Amazing. I just think that there's a <laughs> there's a lot of cuddling afterwards. Right. I, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. The cuddling and. Maybe ordering room service, pillow talk, all of that sounds really lovely. But and and of course I'm, the act itself is great. But I'm just talking about the idea of just him walking in and just claiming whatever he thinks he can claim. I'm just like, nah, I don't know. Maybe just have a little bit of humility. I think that would be more attractive. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, for me, I I think there are so many silly things that you could change. But one thing that I I didn't really think was silly, and I'd this is just personal preference. I understand people do this for sport, but I'm not a big fan of the pheasant shooting scene. I think you could easily change that to clay pigeons and get the same sense of it, uh, where they're just shooting clay pigeons, and then Bond uses it to shoot the guy in the tree. You get the same scene without just over the top, here's a dead pheasant, here's another dead pheasant. I I don't need that in my movie. No no uh, shade on people that do that, but it's just that's what I would change. Uh, best quote, and there are a ton of fun ones here. Bears, what are you picking? I mean, I've already given several, so I, I mean, I think I'm going to stick with the one I mentioned before, which is Q saying, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. That is, um, uh, which- Roger Ebert even said that's the best line in all of Bond. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to not pick that one um, when when it comes up. But there there are so many because because one thing that that Roger Moore was better at than I think any of the other Bonds was delivering that those one liners. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Lizzie, how about you? So I actually surprisingly enough, I actually did go with the Drax quote. It's uh, look after Mr. Bond, see that some harm comes to him, which I just thought was. <laughs> Quippy and fun, kind of little play on the phrase. So that was kind of the one moment that he got a laugh out of me. That is a good villain line. Bears took mine, so I will just go with the ridiculous. So when Bond is de- betting Defoe, she he says to her, what about that list of your mother's? And she responds, I never learned to read, which is somehow supposed to be sexy. <laughs> yes. It's like it's... Yes. it's it's sexy that I'm illiterate, and then they can have sex. <laughs> I thought about that, too. Kind of again, though. I think that goes back to, I think, the fact that, you know, he's, he's I don't know, he's kind of a, a misogynist a little bit, where they 
they thought that that would be like a sexy line, I guess. I right. don't know. Yeah, if a woman came up to me and was like, I'm illiterate, <laughs> be like, I, I'm so sorry, I'm not turned on. But, yes. <laughs> all right, that's that's great. Bears, do you want to give us one last plug of your great projects before we get into our ratings? Yeah, I would love for everybody, if you love sci-fi and sci-fi that's uh, better executed from a science perspective than this film, um, please come on down to Otherworlds Film Festival, which takes place the first weekend of December. And um, we will have about 20 features and 40 short films that you can come see, and most of them will never play in movie theaters again. So. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Check that out. So we've come to our ratings and recommendations, zero to five stars, half star intervals. Bears, what are you giving 1979's Moonraker? Uh, I'm going with three and a half stars. I think it's a solid movie that it, it, most people will like. So I think I think it's a safe a safe yes. I I don't think it's a good way to get people to know the Bond franchise, but no. I do think it is a worthwhile film. Right, Lizzie, I'm very curious with you for a Roger Moore entry. What's your rating uh, for Moonraker? So I give this a 2.5. Uh, fair, fair. Because I do appreciate the, I appreciated the movie, I appreciated the experience. The reason why, I think have had I had prior knowledge to Bond, I possibly could have given it higher rating. Uh, but the reason why I gave it the rating that it did is that I just genuinely don't think I'm its target audience. I don't think that these movies were really meant for somebody like me who isn't particularly excited over James Bond. I'll watch it, but he doesn't give me the you know butterflies that I think he gives a lot of other people who are just loving that action. It was a nice entry for sure because I, like I said, I, I don't want anything that's going to take itself too seriously. But overall, pretty average experience for me. I feel so bad. I feel like oh, I'm don't. completely betraying Russell's because <laughs> I know he's. Don't he don't feel it. bad. Don't feel bad. This is why but, we have um, different perspectives, and I think it's right. wonderful. I think that's great because it's it's no fun when we all just have the same thought process and we're all like, yeah, it's. We all like the same thing, so that's that's awesome. I'm so glad we have your perspective. I I do feel that pressure from Russell, though. I it's probably influencing my star rating a little bit because there have been threats coming into my cell phone. So I'm going four stars under penalty of death. I <laughs> I feel like this movie has a ridiculous amount of glaring problems that I'm just going to ignore altogether because it is fun. It is entertaining. It's silly, and I have a good time. If I'm looking at it critically, it is absolutely, it's probably below a 2.5. But I'm not a critic. I had fun. Four stars for me. And talking of big star movies, we are going to do some Veterans Day movies coming up. We're doing our salute to services. Our option number one, Top Gun from 1986. The students at the United States Navy... Elite fighter weapons school compete to be the best in the class. One daring young pilot learns a few things from a civilian instructor that are not taught in the classroom. Option two, Rambo First Blood Part 2, 1985. 
Rambo returns to the jungles of Vietnam on a mission to infiltrate an enemy base camp and rescue the American POW still held captured there. And option three, Iron Eagle from 1986. A young pilot plans a rescue mission when his father, an Air Force colonel, is shot down over enemy territory and captured. What are we doing, Lizzie? I just saw Top Gun Maverick, and it was unbelievable. So we got to go Top Gun. All right. We're going to turn and burn highway to the danger zone. Excellent. It's overdue. Barris, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for rejoining us, I guess. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Please subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it is not free. There are hosting fees, things like that. We invite you to show your support for us at Patreon, patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and goes towards making this show better for you, the listeners. So as always, thank you for listening to us. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Lizzie? We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs>